Zen teacher Norman Fisher writes, The most important characteristic, the defining characteristic, I would say, of a spiritual practice is that it is useless. That is, it is an activity that has no other practical purpose than to connect you to your heart, into your highest and most mysterious purpose, a purpose that is literally unknown because it references the unanswerable questions. We do so many things for so many good reasons for our physical or psychological or emotional health, for our family life or economic life, for the world. But a spiritual practice is useless. It doesn't address any of those concerns. It is a practice that we do to touch our lives beyond all concerns, reaching beyond our lives to their source. So this source that Roshi Fisher writes about, uh, we might speculate is a certain quality of intimacy, the being with life fully that the Dharma uh, asks of us that allows for a richness and a connection uh, that we are seeking, perhaps that we are seeking beyond getting our daily affairs in order, even though our mind is most often caught up in those uh, ponderings, in those strivings, in those struggles. This source that Roshi points to might also be understood as uh, interdependence. Once we see into the nature of things, we understand that nothing is separate from our practice, and our practice includes everything. So, in a sense, of course, our practice does address the concerns of daily life. It does concern our economic life, our emotional and psychological health, our work, our family, etc. But not in the way that we think or through our usual conventions. In fact, there's a greater subtlety. We're coming into or accessing change through a door that we don't even know yet exists. Tonight I'd like to talk about the hindrances as specific uh, qualities of mind that are said to hinder the development of mind. And as I do this, I'll speak also generally about difficult mind states, difficult emotions. Talks on the hindrances often, almost exclusively in my experience as a practitioner working, mostly uh, in the West, in uh, modern uh, meditation centers, takes an approach of the hindrances whereby we name them and list what we call antidotes, which are essentially 
approaches in practice to thwart their development or make them go away or get rid of them. And this approach to the hindrances sometimes uh, sets up the perception that the hindrances are bad, they're problematic. We call them hindrances, and we say that they hindrance the mind. So therefore, we must abolish them in some way. And uh, on some level, this is appropriate. This is uh, one way that we should understand and relate to the hindrances as less than skillful qualities of mind that can be understood in a particular kind of a way that allows them not to proliferate. But also there is this uh, tension that we might set up whereby if a hindrance is present, we think we're not doing something right. And the truth is hindrances are often present. That's why they're talked about so often. So it's true that um, in the absence of hindrances, helpful or skillful qualities of mind start to arise naturally. This is one of the uh, paradigms, if you will, that we see uh, in the category of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, that as the hindrances start to dissolve or abate, the factors of awakening start to arise, they start to strengthen. So it's like there's a, there's a, really, there's a natural shift where greed and illusion and worry and fear and doubt that are paramount start to weaken and investigation and energy and joy and mindfulness start to get strong. Right? So our practice should include some knowledge uh, of how to work skillfully with the hindrances, uh, maybe even how to apply the antidotes. <clears throat> but it's also true that if we look at our experience day in and day out, both in formal meditation and in daily life, what we'll see is that the hindrances are constantly challenging us. Constantly challenging us. In, in either gross or subtle ways, disturbing an otherwise stable, equanimous, and contented mind. We're not deeply happy when the hindrances are present. We're not deeply happy when the hindrances are present. Partly because of how we relate to them, not simply because they're present. And this is what I want to focus on tonight. We are not deeply happy when the hindrances are present, partly because of how we relate to them or understand them, the perceptions we hold about them, not simply because they're present. There are places in the suttas, the suttas of course contain uh, really stories in effect, many many stories about the, uh, the Buddha's life and the yogis that came around and wanted to learn meditation from him and you know, really at times very, uh, certainly very interesting and also very humorous stories about the troubles that people 
get themselves in and how uh, the challenges that uh, folks endured in their pursuit of uh, wisdom, uh, how these difficulties encourage the Buddha to create uh, rules of conduct, uh, ethical codes, and created the conditions for him to develop uh, all the different ways of explaining uh, the core teachings and the techniques of meditation. And there are times in these teaching stories where we get lists from the Buddha or perhaps maybe uh, lists that got added by those who interpreted his initial teachings and were actually writing the suttas down. And these lists sometimes indicate aspects of mind or habits of mind or tendencies that are weakened through meditation and sometimes go away. Right? We see uh, in certain ways the teachings are framed very stage-like developmental models suggesting that at certain points along the way we might not have to deal uh, so much with certain difficulties, certain problems. These models don't indicate that the hindrances are going to go away. Maybe toward the later stages, maybe if and when one is an arahant, we no longer have to wrestle with these uh, human tendencies. But for the most part, the hindrances are going to kind of they're going to continue to come back. I know that they remain present in me all five, and we'll go over them together. Uh, I know that I work with them every day. Uh, Even on retreat, when the mind is stable, with the exception of maybe very unique stages on long retreat, uh, they show up, at least from time to time, even when the mind is uh, most regulated. I know that the hindrances are dealt with constantly uh, by my peers, those people who are uh, closest to me and doing a lot of practice and also teaching. Uh, And as far as I can tell, the hindrances are present in the most elder and credentialed uh, teachers on this path. So uh, we should, uh, I think we should know this, that we, I think we should not be setting up false assumptions that We're going to do away with them and then just be okay. What we can expect is that with diligent practice, under certain very special circumstances such as retreat, we might have periods when the mind is very equanimous, reactivity is very, very low, and energy and motivation are just right. These factors all have to come together just right. And we get to experience a mind less hindered by unskillful mind states. But what I'm most interested in right now is a view of the hindrances in a way of working with them that accounts for their persistence. Okay, so I just want to be clear that that's the angle at which I'm coming at this. In this way, I'm interested in framing a perspective and way of working uh, actively with the hindrances 
that accommodates two things. A, a specific understanding or learning that is consistent with the Buddhist notion of insight or wisdom despite the presence of the hindrances. And a method of reducing the power of hindrances that supplements the common use of antidotes. The underlying view is that an open and interested relationship to the hindrances is preferable to a closed and adversarial one. The underlying view is that an open and interested relationship to the hindrances is preferable to a closed and adversarial one. And maybe I would argue equally as effective as applying the antidotes. Okay? And I'll spend the rest of our discussion trying to, <coughs> trying to explore how that might be possible. To create a little bit of a foundation for this uh, discussion, there are two ways that yogis, uh, students, meditators often present on this path. One is what I call a cessation in balance. And as I share this model with you, you might see that you identify strongly with one or the other, or maybe you ebb and flow between the two, or maybe there are stages in your life or in your practice where one uh, way of relating seems more prevalent. The first is that we relate to ourselves or our practice or our life uh, in what I call a cessation imbalance. This is when we are over-attached to the idea that there is some pervasive pleasant state that we should eventually arrive at. Do you ever notice that view creeping into your practice? <laughs> Eventually, even though it sucks right now, once I just figure, and we don't even know what it is that we need to figure out, once I figure this something out, whatever underlies all that cryptic language that the teachers are always, then I'll get it. And, you know, I'll just be happy forever. I'll be good to everybody. Somehow everybody will then, of course, be good to me all the time. No one will call me, cause me any hardships. There'll be no ants in the house. There'll be no problems. And so we're almost, we're almost waiting for that to happen. We're trying really hard at, our, hard at our meditation. We're learning, we're studying, we're talking to the teachers. But we're actually just hoping that at some point, all that hard work falls away because we've done the right things thus far. <laughs> the other way we show up sometimes is with a dukkha imbalance. There is an overemphasis on difficult mind states and challenges both in practice and life. This is the view that the presence of hindrances and afflictive states indicate that they are doing the practice wrong or otherwise that their awareness of these or otherwise their awareness of these states keep us stuck in a low-lying frustration has this ever happened you've been at this for many many years and you're on retreat and you just spent 3 hours in physical pain 
thinking that maybe you're not doing very good at the meditation, and there's a sense of hopelessness. Here I am again, right? Again, again. So we might strongly and chronically identify with one of these archetypes, or we might just find ourselves more stage-like coming in and out of one or the other. In other words, to have a constructive relationship to the hindrances, we need to become interested in them in a way that accounts for the value of reducing them. This is also true for any difficult emotion. But which makes space for them in our practice in life in the spirit of investigation. So we really want to be very curious about what we call the hindrances. How do they arise? And when they do, what is my relationship to them? And how does my relationship to them affect the quality or severity of them, the degree to which they actually do hinder, the degree to which they actually do result in other difficult mind states? Or how does the way I relate to them allow them to be present simultaneously with a quality of equanimity, which is the mind of no problem here? What was once a problem, aversion, is present with a quality of mind that is okay with it. And so we, we start to f- feel what aversion is like with this other quality of acceptance. And we start to recognize how when that happens, aversion doesn't become anything else. Aversion doesn't even become stronger aversion. It's just aversion. It's not, it's not even a problem anymore. One of the most subtle and deepest insights that reveals how meditation works, which is often in direct contrast to prevailing perceptions we hold about how change occurs before meditation really takes root, is that being with something fully is a reliable action for transformation. And this is really counterintuitive for many of us at the beginning of practice. And if we tell this to people who aren't interested in this practice, they might not buy it. Intellectually, it doesn't really make sense because most of our programming and most of the way we initiate change is through some sort of doing. This is saying, it's suggesting that there's a way of viable transformation by way of being or being with. This is what we're learning how to do. This is is what is so radical about this practice. And if we're really paying attention and reflecting on our meditation, what we'll see is that most often we're not. We're not just being with what is. In the degree to which we are going to continue to see this is, go, is probably going to surprise us. We see it. We Okay, I got it. And then we see it at a deeper level. And then we think we're being with experience. And then we see even more clearly. Right? There are all these possibilities of dropping deeper and deeper and deeper into things just as they are. Just as they are.
So what are the hindrances? Uh, let's talk a little bit about them, and for some of us this will be a review, which I hope will be helpful, and uh, possibly for a few people in the room uh, this might be new. We might be hearing this for the first time. <coughs> so the first category, or the, the first hindrance, is desire. Okay? Desire becomes a hindrance when we want something and grasp for it or cling to it. So desire becomes a hindrance based on our relationship to it. A desire to be uh, happier is not a problem. A desire to lose five pounds or gain five pounds is not a problem. A desire to be a little bit warmer and uh, to be able to sit here in meditation without 14 blankets on at the end of May is not a problem. <laughs> that desire is not a problem. <laughs> um, having a headache and a desire to get rid of it is not a problem. But our way of relating to desire when it takes on a quality of attachment or clinging, when we can't be okay in the absence of the acquisition of that which we seek, we're in big trouble. And that's when it becomes a hindrance. Aversion, ill will, and fear. Let's talk about this as a category. There's three elements. Okay, I'll break it down a little bit. Aversion is pretty simple. Aversion is wanting things to be different than they are, and there's a quality of pushing away. Okay? Aversion is wanting things to be different than they are, and it has a quality of pushing away. Ill will is an, escal and is, is an escalation of aversion into wishing harm to someone or something that is in the way of us getting what we want. Just notice if when I said that there was a little voice inside your head that said, I don't do that. <laughs> I can remember years of not being able to identify with this. And later found out it was a very deeply rooted form of ignorance and inability to see uh, the nature of the hindrances as either often present or dormant tendencies that we all have. I can remember when many, many years after my meditation, many, many years into my meditation, I just saw clearly, wow, I too, I too have the capacity for ill will. Right? And it really shocked me. I was very disappointed. So this is where equanimity comes in. Now I don't like myself more than I didn't like myself before. <laughs> Fear is having an aversion of something that hasn't yet happened. Fear... <laughs> is having an aversion of something that hasn't yet happened. Right? You see how that works? 
<laughs> I've given uh, part of this. Uh, I gave part of this talk recently in Boston, and a story that I shared with the group that had happened, I think the day that, uh, in the afternoon of the day that I was uh, going to talk about some of this material, I was writing some notes and I went to the local YMCA in the town I live in and I was exercising and my phone buzzed to tell me there was a text message and I try not to look at this, I try not to look at this stuff while I'm at the Y because I have two periods of the day, morning meditation and an afternoon period of time at the Y where it's like I'm not uh, I'm not plugged in, I'm not writing or checking emails or you know whatever it is. But needless to say, uh, I looked at my phone and there was a text message and it just said, are you available to talk now? That's it. That's all it said. Pretty benign, right? And not descriptive really at all. Uh, I looked at it and I felt this immediate contraction through my torso. There's a real tightness. I said, wow, that's interesting, right? And there was a shortness of breath, right? So I was, I was, I was interested in the, the, the texture and tone of this uh, physicality and I'm, I'm watching it and feeling it. And then I noticed that there was a flush of different thoughts, and without getting into the, the nuances of those thoughts, the overlaying impression was, they don't like me. Mm. I'm going to, and in this felt sense of, I might be abandoned. Like mm. this person with whom I have a relationship, this relationship might actually end. Because I got a text message that asked me if I could talk now. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I don't even think I can do a good job of describing the physicality of it. I'm, I'm trying with words, but it was very distinct, very uncomfortable, and a little bit scary. And then there was all the thoughts, right? And then there was this, this basic impression, the possibility of abandonment, of not having something in my life in the future that I currently have, which I appreciate, which I like, which I want to continue. I wasn't able to talk to that person uh, right away, but later they called back, and uh, I was nervous. And uh, they said, I had this gap during the day, an unexpected gap. I just had like three or four minutes. I was really thinking about you and appreciating you so much. I just wanted to call, <laughs> I just wanted to call and say hi. So amazing what the mind can do. Right? And then the mind went, Good, my relationship with this person will be like this forever. <laughs> They're always going to appreciate me and take their three or four minute unexpected break in the day to call me. Right? Sloth and torpor, weird words for tired and lazy. <laughs> the mind and body are really relaxed. The mind and body are really relaxed. But too much so to be conducive to mindfulness. 
uh, we're actually not very self-aware. There might be an overall pleasant feeling, uh, but the mind is not stable, it's not sharp, it's not uh, seeing the nuances of experience very closely. We're not seeing the details that give rise to insight. We're not seeing cause and effect. What we want is to be tranquil and alert in practice. The hindrance of sloth and torpor is present when there is tranquility without alertness. Okay. This will happen often in practice. You might have already gone through several cycles of this. And by the way, that's one thing important to say, is that on retreat, my suspicion is that you're going to cycle possibly through all five of these hindrances. One of the values of retreat is you just keep seeing the cycle. Right? Keep seeing it. Too much tranquility without alertness tends to be dreamy and pleasant. It's relaxing but not conducive to awareness. Part of the problem is that because of the nature and reality and persistence of dukkha, when the mind slips into this dreamy-like state, uh, it presents as a false approximation of awakening or peace. And really, perhaps comparative to acute dukkha states, it is more pleasant and maybe even more beneficial. That's, that's probably a different conversation. But what I can say here is that it's not necessarily conducive to the development of insight. And that's the point that we're, we're trying to... Uh, that's the understanding that we're trying to craft, okay? But you can see where we might settle into this state, which is okay, this is nice. Breeze feels good. Grass is nice on my back. The sun feels good on my face. Don't have to work very hard. I work hard all week. Maybe I'll just snooze here for a little while. I'm not really suffering. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I'm not working very hard. That's great. I'll just linger here. No one will know. <laughs> it looks like I'm doing walking meditation. <laughs> I'm so still in my seated meditation that everybody in the room probably thinks I'm super concentrated. Great. I'll just, I'll just hang out here. Right? It's that sort of, we're getting by. We're getting by. Restlessness, worry, and anxiety. So again, let's put these together. This is another group or a category. We'll talk a little bit about the difference between them. We probably all know restlessness really well, and this is just a basic feeling of agitation or overexcitement. This can happen when really, really good things are happening in our life, actually. My opinion is that if really good things are happening and there's just a lot of excitement that we might just need some time for it to, the novelty of that event to, uh, uh, to lessen the way it, it turns us up. I, I recently uh, got interested in a new apartment maybe moving. 
and uh, I got, perhaps, I mean, this hasn't transpired yet, but uh, perhaps got really lucky where I mentioned to a friend at coffee that I might want uh, to move. I said, you know, just let me know if you see anything out, you know, near where you live. And he said, well, actually, I've got this place that's empty, and I was thinking about maybe renting it, but I don't. Uh, what he said actually was, I don't want any keg parties, so you'd actually be a really good person if you want to live there. Um, and uh, so I went to, went and looked at it, and, you know, simply, I, I thought that maybe this would be a really wonderful place to move to. And for several days, I, I was creating all these images in my head of what it would be like to live there. And, you know, it's I would have to do some things differently, like maybe paint and get some furniture and to kind of fill it out a little bit and so I started mapping every room in the house <laughs> and uh, I was very excited in a way that's actually healthy in a sense right and uh, but what I want to articulate is that it was hard to like it was like hard to do something like plan for this you know and it was hard to just sit down and do a lot of administrative work for the yoga center I was just really there was too much energy there was no concentration at all to really do anything, right? That's, that's restlessness. The mind is not stable because there's constant ag agitation. So, so the mind doesn't have the time to see fully. It just, you know, it's fluttering. Right? Uh, restlessness is, is unpleasant, uh, so there's a tendency of the mind to push it away. And I noticed this, even though there was a more or less uh, benign or mundane situation unfolding in my life. You know, maybe I'm going to move. It's not really not a big deal. Um, but it, I recognized that it didn't feel good, that it was, uh, the mind was not able to remain calm and stable. And so immediately there is an overlay on top of that. I want it to go away. Make it go away. Stop this. Don't have this much fun enjoying the prospect of moving. It was like I just, you know, it's like wanting to be more regulated. So that's a version in a sense. So the mind is restless, and restlessness is further enhanced by struggling against it. Sometimes we, I'm gonna, sometimes we have to give restlessness a lot of space. Sometimes you have to say, okay, right now I'm restless. Okay, imagine a big. A strong animal like an ox with a lot of energy, huge animal, right? Maybe over a thousand pounds. And if you took this animal and you put it in a ten by ten pen, it might uh, go. It might, it, that energy might build and build, and it's going to feel trapped, right? So if you put that animal with all that energy in a pen that's a hundred yards by a hundred yards, then it can start to move around, right? It can, uh, the space can allow for that level of energy in the animal or the mind can roam until the energy naturally starts to dissipate. Worry is fear of what may happen in the future. Worry is fear of what might happen in the future. And less often talked about Wary of what might not happen in the future. This is more the case for me. I don't worry that much 
about what might happen in the future. I don't worry about death. I'm ready to go. I'm fine. I could go tonight. I do worry about what might not happen. I do worry about what might not happen. So what might worry look like? Uh, basically, uh, the conditions won't be conducive to having the life that I want or that we want. That's what worry is. The conditions won't be conducive to having the life that we want. In my case, one of my greatest fears is that I won't be available when someone I'm close to dies. I'll be teaching a retreat like this, for example. My phone will be shut off or I'll be on retreat or I'll be in Asia or... You know, I'm often not near home. And this is a distinct form of worry. It sounds very uh, empathetic and compassionate, doesn't it? And I think there are layers of that. But really, if I look at it, I'm also afraid of the feelings of guilt and sadness that I might feel if for some reason the choices I'm making in life don't allow me to be available to provide assumedly comfort for someone who I love and care about when they die. This is very tricky. It's very interesting. Yes, there's some empathy and compassion. The relationships are important. I want to show up 100% for them. And I'm just scared of the difficult emotions that I will endure around the fact that I wasn't there. Very interesting. That's a little bit more selfish, isn't it? Anxiety is a non-specific fear of what might happen in the future. Sometimes it's hard to pin down a cause. Restlessness, worry, anxiety of the mind tend to show in restlessness of the body. Signs of this are wanting to shift or move and also tightness or tension. Right. So sometimes we can, we can investigate the mind to see uh, what the predominant overarching uh, state is. Sometimes, sometimes we can go in the reverse direction. We can look at the body. Feel the body and investigate the mind through the body. And the more we meditate, the better we get at this. I, for example, have a uh, worry about the future shows up just underneath the right shoulder blade. Not sometimes, always. That's where it lives. And sometimes... I'm able to just, you know, I'm walking down the sidewalk and I just, I just notice what's going on in my mind and it's worry about the future. Sometimes I'm not self-aware of mental process, but I get a distinct, sharp pain. It has a very unique quality that doesn't arise with any other mental state. And I feel that pain, both its location and quality. And then I look to the mind, there it is, worry about the future. So we can work in both directions. The last category is doubt. Doubt is a state of indecision or vacillation. It causes us to hold back or to remain trapped by ruminating thoughts. Maybe that has happened to some of you once or twice. Or often. <laughs> This keeps us from fully applying ourselves on the path or to something we want to accomplish in our life. Have you ever noticed that? You really want something, 
but you seem to be unable to put a lot of energy in that direction. You notice that? Doubt interrupts the gathering of data uh, with premature questions. We never actually figure out exactly how to move toward what we want. We don't know whether to zig left or zag right because we're hung up in these premature preliminary questions. Uh, and these questions comprise any number of variations such as, can I do this? Is this the right way for me? Am I good enough? Will I make enough money? Am I creative enough? And the list can be very, very long, and you can, you can fill in the blank with your own questions. The mind doesn't trust its own capacity. The mind doesn't trust your own intelligence. The mind doesn't trust that others will support you. The mind doesn't trust that you're good enough and deserving enough to have happiness in a good life on some level. Doubt reveals a distinct sense of self, in this case a feeling of me, inflated by thoughts, I can't, I'm not good enough, I won't be supported, I won't be accepted, I'll be abandoned or turned away, etc., etc., etc. In terms of practice, doubt sometimes shows up um, by way of questioning the technique. Is this really going to lead to a better life, you know, this awakening thing that everybody keeps talking about, wisdom, you know, what is that, actually, and what is the correlation between watching my breath and walking around like a zombie in silence all day with ultimately <laughs> feeling at peace, we don't know yet, and it's, it's very natural, of course we don't know yet, insight, minimizes doubt. That's how it works. So we often have doubt proportionate to our insight. As doubt in, as insight increases, doubt starts to go like this. It goes in the other direction. I mentioned that the hindrances uh, at even uh, the most promising stages of awakening maybe weaken, but don't totally go away. There's a distinct stage in the uh, practice where doubt does go away. It's actually in what we sometimes call the four-path model. At the first stage, doubt in the dharma, doubt in the meditation techniques, uh, goes away completely. It's, it's very unshakable uh, trust that occurs. And uh, often when this happens, you see someone pour even more energy into practice and you see them starting to make radical shifts in terms of how they spend time and energy. Uh, they become very, very animated for practice. In all cases, the common denominator is that the presence of the hindrances show us a different, show us the different ways that the self is constructed and maintained. How we create a relationship to life based on feelings and ideas about who we are based on what we have or don't have in the present and on what we will or won't get in the future. 
So even when the hindrances are present, we can start to get a distinct sense of our unique uh, persona and personality, which is going to provide some insight to our particular flavor of suffering. So what do we learn from the hindrances? What understanding can we derive from turning toward them that supports the unfolding of dharma or wisdom? The first way of thinking about this is that we understand who we are by seeing what or who we are not. We see or understand who we are by seeing who or what we are not. This is insight into anatta or not-self. Buddhist practice often works by way of uh, elimination, if you will. I'm not my fear. I'm not my worry. I'm not my aggression. I'm not my inability to act. The reference there is to doubt. I'm not my dysregulated aversion. I am not my dysregulated desire. Until eventually it appears that we are not anything in particular outside of these changing emotional or mental states. Seeing that all mental states are impermanent challenges the notion of a solid self. So an intellectual or philosophical quandary becomes an experiential reality. It's hard to pin down this so-called self. If we're really looking closely the state of worry that existed at 11 o'clock was gone when you were gorging yourself in this exquisite meal. You were just happy. And then you got maybe really tired. And maybe that triggered some resistance to being here and continuing to sustain the kind of uh, commitment that's required just to get through the day. I shouldn't say just get through the day. What is it, like a 16-hour day? We start at 7, we go to bed at 9, whatever that is. It's a lot of effort. My guess is that it's hard to sustain that effort throughout the whole day. So there, there can be this low and heavy energy. I experienced it almost all afternoon, sitting in my room writing this talk, with a quasi-migraine from allergies, congestion, really, really tired. How am I going to get this done? You know, What's going to happen when I go down there and sit in front of all these people? I'm going to have to say something. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a disaster. You know, but if we watch, it changes. Everything changes, right? Everything changes. You know, so are we our pleasant states or are we our unpleasant states? What are the what are what are the benefits of uh, beginning to build a relationship with anatta? 
A, we take our life less personally. It's just that simple. And that is not insignificant. We just take our life less personally and we suffer less. You see how that could be true? Even just um, as a thought experiment. Whatever particular challenges you identify with, much of your difficulty probably is associated with how seriously you take yourself. <laughs> you are a very big deal. Whether you, whether you are trying to get rid of suffering or make something good happen. It's still quite a project, isn't it? And it's so rare that we get it just right, where we're right in between trying to become a good person and pushing something away. It's like we're just, we just, every now and again we land in this place where we're accepting ourselves and, and uh, putting just the right amount of effort into uh, tweaking something unskillful. Right? We're just, every now and again we get it just right. There's another benefit. <clears throat> Um, this this might fall into the this might um, this has a relational value and starts to get into the territory of what is more popular popularly being called external or relational mindfulness. We begin to understand that others are not exclusively their unskillful behaviors. And this understanding lends itself naturally to empathy and eventually compassion. I talked a little bit about this last night, right? This is what happens when we see the universality of the Four Noble Truths. Beyond our persona and personal rendering of them. Right? This refers to a depth of insight. There's a particular way in which we see causes and conditions that indicate oh, this is happening for everybody. Because this that I'm seeing is the construction of the self. Right? None of our behaviors define who we are, yet we all suffer. Isn't that true? Right? We all suffer on some level. We all experience difficult feelings. In this compromises our happiness and ability to always make skillful choices. This is the correlation to empathy and compassion. Other people are annoying you because they are confused and unhappy. They don't have insight. Okay? Most often than not, almost all the time, they are actually not trying to annoy you. <laughs> They're actually just not doing what you want them to do. Right? It's this paradox. It's the inevitability of stress and suffering in life coupled with the knowledge that it's conditioned by a deep lack of understanding about the nature of things that gives rise to compassion. We have to see both. Eventually our mind begins to turn in a way that resembles one of Dogen's most famous statements, only keep the question, only keep the question, what is the best way of helping other people? 
What is the best way of helping other people? Okay, so the first way we can learn from the presence of the hindrances is to see or understand who we are by seeing who or what we are not. This is insight into anatta, not self. A second uh, way uh, we might benefit from a conscious relationship to the hindrances uh, is that we simply understand the truth of impermanence or change. This is insight into anicca. And really, I've already mentioned this, but when we explore the hindrances like we would explore emotions, right? Feeling them, turning toward them, noticing where they are in the body. What we notice is that they come and go. They get stronger, they get more painful. They get weaker, they go away completely. Maybe they stay away. Maybe we don't have to deal with that emotion or hindrance for eight hours. Maybe it comes back ten minutes later and we're surprised and we're disappointed, right? Maybe it has a particular location in the body but it undulates, right? They're replaced by other thoughts, other emotions, other feelings, other hindrances. So we understand that like emotions, these categories that we call hindrances are also always changing. They're mental states and they are subject to this law. They are subject to this law, a fundamental truth of life, impermanence, anicca. Facing the hindrances, and this is a, you'll, you, you can see here I think where this is, uh, there's a differentiation here between applying an antidote and removing the hindrance. Facing hindrances is directly facing the reality of being human. In doing so, we go against that part of our conditioning that turns away from difficulty through repression, denial, distraction, addiction, busyness, etc., etc., etc. It's just being with life as it is. Typically, our mind doesn't stay with any one experience long enough to understand experience at its core. Typically, our mind does not stay with any one experience long enough to understand experience at its core. This is what we're challenging through the development of mindfulness. When we are able to stay present, what we see is everything that passes through awareness is not locatable back to anything solid, permanent, fixed that we might call a self or a me or an I. Everything that passes through awareness is not able to be referenced back to anything ever, period, and stop. We see it. Sharon Salzberg writes, Mindfulness helps us get better at seeing the difference between what's happening and the stories we tell ourselves about what's happening. Stories that get in the way of direct experience. Often such stories treat a fleeting state of mind as if it were our entire and permanent self. What is the third insider understanding or learning or development that might come from turning toward the hindrances. 
we might see or understand how dukkha is created. So this is insight into dukkha, insight into suffering. And this is, uh, this is quite simple, I think. I think it's quite uh, direct. If we over-identify with hindrances, this would be the dukkha imbalance view from the early part of the talk. If we over-identify with hindrances, we create a perception of a solid self and a perception of a flawed self and we suffer as a result of fixed views that are generally self-judgmental and without adequate kindness. Okay? And because it's so easy to fall into this, this is one of the reasons why I think metta practice is so helpful. If you're developing a home practice, integrating metta in a little bit each day or maybe alternating, right? Insight and concentration one day metta another day, or metta as a variation of concentration, etc. Yet, if we fail to... So this is the other side of the equation. Yet if we fail to take responsibility for the ways the hindrances hold us back from making change in our lives, we continue to act unskillfully and cause suffering to ourselves and others. So what does this mean? What this means is that we need freedom from over-identification with the hindrances, with responsibility for them, that is both conscious and conscientious. We need freedom from over-identification with responsibility that is both conscious, which is to say beyond our conditioning, beyond our old ways of doing things, and conscientious, which is to say thoughtful and caring. So to conclude, as we supplement the conventional approach to hindrances, which is a hindrance removal approach, with hindrance tolerance, we break down some of the conceptions of good and bad and right and wrong that form rigid views and beliefs, which are the backbone of a distinct sense of self or I or me that stands against someone else or certain situations, including our own mind states. If we fail to see that the mechanism that turns away from, represses, hides, is embarrassed by the arising of hindrances is the self taking a position that is inherently divisive, we fail to see that we are splitting ourselves off from intimacy and simultaneously we are keeping tanha intact. Tanha is the second noble truth in the cause of dukkha. But if we can embrace the hindrances, we can begin to dissolve tanha. The actions of pushing and pulling at experience. <coughs> We're letting things be. And this in turn allows the mind to become quiet and stable. Which allows for clear seeing and insight to arise. One of the insights that arises 
is the understanding that being with the hindrances, which is a form of kindness toward ourselves, in learning from them in this way, connecting with them, is a powerful way of reducing our reactivity, which actually fosters their removal. So in the end, we can say that hindrance tolerance is a vehicle for hindrance removal. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.